Part Two, Chapter Sixteen of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter Sixteen, The Third Escape. The sun sank below the mountain tops. The last time, perhaps, for us, who in silence watched it going down. But speculations were idle, so we reasoned and proceeded to make ready. Two plans were open, both desperate in their chances and almost hopeless in their risks. One was to make a bold rush upon the guard, overpower, bind and gag him, then walk out unmolested. Each thereafter to shift for himself. But this was almost certain death, for a single articulate cry, nay, the very movements of a subdued struggle with the guard, would give the alarm and all would be over. Even supposing such an attack might in the one chance of a thousand succeed, in such a bright moonlight night, how could we pass sentries and scale the mountains unperceived? It seemed only too sure that we would be shot down. The other plan was to climb the chimney, drop down in the water, and either swim across the river or run along the bank, then cross the railroad and strike up the mountainside. This arrangement was almost as rash and hopeless as the other, for the sentinel inside would surely see the attempt, and either put his gun within the fireplace and pull the trigger, or else step outside and give warning, when sundry bullets would be ready to tap the first emerging head. As it was with Tutchin when Jeffreys, during the bloody assize, gave him the choice of deaths, so it was with us. To rest supine, yield to fate, drag out a lingering life in prison, was to us only another form of slow, torturing death. Hence we decided on the latter program as offering, not a surer means of escape, but one a little less certain of defeat. When evening came on, the sentinels placed on duty at six were relieved and others put in their places. It was a clear, cold night, with the northwest wind rendering the cold only more searching and bitter, the blast would often push its way down the low chimney, bringing with it clouds of smoke which filled the room, got into our eyes, and made indistinct for a while every object in the apartment. We coughed and wiped away the tears. The sentinel, more fortunate, could thrust his head outside the entrance to drink in a breath of fresh air and cool his smarting eyes. As he did this, mysterious notes, written stealthily, passed between us concerning the enterprise rapidly drawing near. Ten o'clock, and again the guard was relieved. The tall, slab-sided fellow, who stood erect and vigilant inside the door, was replaced by a young soldier, apparently not over sixteen years of age. The fire was burning brightly, but Robinson had piled on an armful of green wood, which for a time effectually quenched the flames and sent a dense volume of smoke rolling up the chimney and half-shrouding the room in darkness. A counter-current of air blew down the chimney, and for some minutes the room was as dim as if lit by a torch which shone through a fog. The Englishman, at a sign of entreaty, well disposed to help, approached the youthful guard and engaged him in conversation. It had been settled that Robinson should take the first and better chance for life in the essay. I whispered eagerly, Now, now, keep cool. Don't lose presence of mind. Jump up. I will hide you. For one instant he sat motionless, as if turned to stone, then his massive jaw closed with sudden resolution. One quick glance, 
There stood the guard with his back to him, talking to the Englishman who was facing the hearth, and then my comrade sprang up the chimney. I seized a blanket, and holding it before the fire as if warming it, effectually screened the movement from view. He mounted rapidly, coolly, and deliberately. No awkward step of foot or touch of hand sent the stones rattling down. No hasty action betrayed his absence. As if to fix the fire, I knelt and looked up, perceiving only through the aperture the twinkling stars. His cast of the die had been thrown, and he had won. Why should the other fail? Just then a heavy blow was struck against the outside of the house, so sharp and sudden that the young guard put his head out to see from whence the noise came. Years later, when we two old comrades in misfortune met, Robinson solved the mystery. He threw a heavy stone that had fallen from the top of the chimney noiselessly upon the snow to draw the attention of the guard and afford his fellow prisoner a chance, a parting compliment, too, to give certain sign that he was free. The time was at hand. To flinch was cowardice. Outside, the sound of voices growing louder, then retreating as if in pursuit, Robinson's flight had been detected. In less time than it takes to tell, for from first to last it had all seemed only the work of a few moments, while yet the guard was gazing into the night, eager in his youthful, unrestrained curiosity to learn the cause of the confusion, while yet the fire was bursting into flames, I jumped into the midst of the blaze and smoke, and sought exit up the chimney. I have been in some warm places in my life's experience, but that was the hottest of all. The flames set fire to my jacket, and my legs seemed as if they were in a fiery furnace, but for the pair of corduroy trousers in which they were encased, trousers which shriveled and crackled but did not ignite, the consequence might have been a first-class cremation. There was now but one idea in my mind, to get out of the fast-climbing flames and the painful heat. All other dangers were for the time forgotten. Decorous climbing had become a hasty scramble, which sent the soot into my eyes and stones and mortar down the chimney. There was no effort at secrecy in the desperate struggle to reach the top, only a mad effort to escape burning, to draw into the lungs a breath of fresh air, then let come what might. Luckily, the chimney was built of large and small stones, so that the crevices between furnished good foothold. In a few seconds I was at the summit, drawing in the sweet, pure air, the coldness of which was as refreshing as the drop of cold water would have been to the parched tongue of Dives. But only for a second did I linger. My clothes were on fire, and with one jump I sprang headlong into the river, knocking off in the act some of the large rocks which rimmed the top, and which went tumbling down, with little noise, into the fire below. Altogether, the novel ascent could not have consumed more than half a minute, but it seemed hours. It was indeed a sudden change, from the blazing, contracted hollow of stones and soot, into the wide, freezing river. Ugh! How congelling it was! I started to swim across, but was too numbed and the current too strong. This same strong current did me a good turn, however, when, inertly trusting to its guidance, it bore me on its bosom rapidly and noiselessly amid the floating ice some fifty yards downstream and out of reach of the immediate danger of being shot. I struggled then to the bank and climbed up, life now depending upon my losing no second in placing space between me and my enemies, so I ran along the shore for about seventy yards, taking tremendous leaps as I went. 
I then sank down to gain breath. After a few deep respirations, I crawled on hands and knees across the railroad, and lying down flat, rested there another short while before attempting the steep mountainside, which I climbed as I had never climbed before. Stinging cold as it was, the perspiration ran in streams down my face and body. But I neither paused nor looked around until nearly halfway up, and then behind a large rock I rested again to take breath. The scene below was plainly understood and proved most interesting. The whole garrison was evidently swarming around the guardhouse like so many fireflies upon a summer night. Many had lanterns and were trying to strike a trail, and it was quite apparent that the camp was fully roused and in earnest in its search. So secure did I feel in my elevation that I was tempted to give vent to a long, joyful shout, but prudently repressed it, remembering the old saw, never whistle until you are out of the woods. I kept on, soon reaching the top of the mountain, which was only one of the range lying between the river and the coveted destination. But luck was all in my favor now, since it was a clear cloudless night, and the blaze of the northern lights made the earth clear as day, a guide and beacon suspended so faithfully in the heavens that there need be no mistake about the route. Since the world began, has the faithful star hung out its pilot signal for all wanderers on the earth's face. But no Arab on the pathless desert, no Indian on the trackless plain, no early voyager across the seas ever hailed it with more gratitude than I, for whom its steady rays meant safety and liberty. There was no danger of getting lost in the mountain wilds, when glittering above the treetops, clear and bright, the North Star pointed the way straight home. Turning my back upon it, I kept on due south, looking neither to the right nor to the left, and though every mountainside which I descended was sure to have a stream of water at its foot, I would plunge in and make my way across. Issuing from the water chilled and numb, a few moments of violent exertion would restore circulation and bring back a comfortable glow. There were four of these creeks on the route, and in the valley a broad stream obstructed all progress but I easily swam it, and at last, guided by the lone star, level country was reached. The snow was about two feet deep on average, but frozen so hard on top as to bear a man's weight. Hence the intervening miles were skimmed over at a rapid rate, and after an hour's walk a broad turnpike was reached which ran south, and this I henceforth kept. The cold was so intense, the wind so wintry, that my clothes were as stiff as sheets of iron, and I had need to keep on at a swinging trot to prevent freezing. The measured motion calmed the nerves and cleared my brain, and speeding along in a dog-trot, I reflected coolly upon the incidents of the last few hours, marveling greatly that the guard had never turned his head to see, that he had not fired into the chimney after the first falling stone had betrayed the mode of exit. Surely the jump into the river must have been heard, and it would have been easy to have shot me. It must be presumed that they were all taken by surprise, and that some moments were consumed in calling out the guard, moments precious to a man speeding for his life. Then again the sentry inside doubtless lost all presence of mind, as some men are wont to do in emergencies, for he had only to step out, wait for his prisoner to come forth from the chimney, when he could have shot him. Perhaps the Englishman gave advice in keeping with his sympathies to the startled man, as inexperienced as his years were few, 
or in some manner baffled search for those who had enlisted his friendship. These conjectures and theories remain such to this day, for no light has ever been thrown upon the incident. Not a soul did I encounter throughout the long tramp, though I traveled until the rising sun warned me of the necessity for concealment. Safety was far too near and dear to risk jeopardizing it by recklessness. Once, early in the night, I neared the sleeping camp of the enemy, upon whose beaten tramp a sentinel paced to and fro, his musket gleaming in the moonlight. But I stooped upon the snow, and with my knife hollowed out a place upon which I could place my feet without fear that the crunching of the snow under my tread would betray me, working laboriously and slowly until the danger was past, and I could make up for the delay by greater speed. On the left of the road, and some distance away, I came upon an old deserted sawmill, half hidden by trees and bushes, affording a good refuge for the day. Burrowing down into the sawdust, which made a warm sort of lair, I slept till the sun went down, when again I proceeded in a trot all night, meeting no one on the route. I was terribly hungry, having fasted thirty-six hours, but I chewed away on a stick, resolved to run no more risk in asking for food unless I felt certain of the people. Just as day was breaking, I saw a large barn across a field, and I determined to lie concealed in it for another day. On reaching the barn, I climbed into the haymow, and making a hole deep down, I covered myself carefully, and in an instant was sound asleep. I was awakened by someone standing directly upon me pitching the hay to the cattle. It was impossible to sleep again, when hunger was so intense that a gnawing acute pain made every other feeling subservient. At last, rendered desperate, I followed in the wake of the farmhand, to whose house a few steps brought us. I was kindly received and a breakfast prepared, which could hardly have come amiss after so long a fast. The family were Virginians, with every feeling enlisted in the Southern cause. They informed me, upon inquiry, that I had made thirty-five miles the first night, and thirty-three the second, and that only a dozen miles were between me and Winchester. Sleeping all day, I continued my journey, flanking the town, and in two more nights traveling, not going further into particulars, reached Confederate pickets at Woodstock, and was safe at last. The stone thrown upon the banks of the Potomac was guided by the hand of destiny, and the prediction, though born of superstition, did not betray the faith that cherished it. I will close this chapter by narrating an antidote of General Lee, which shows his tact and kindness of heart, and tells plainly why the rank and file of the Army of Northern Virginia idolized him. While I was a prisoner at Harper's Ferry I met two men, dressed in citizens' clothes, who had been taken up by the bluecoats near the ferry, and charged with being spies. They were handcuffed and had been in prison some months. They said that they belonged to White's Battalion of Cavalry and gave their names, and made me promise, if I escaped, I would see General Jeb Stuart, state their condition, and get him to demand that they should be treated as prisoners of war. As soon as I reached the cavalry camp, I went to headquarters to fulfill my pledge. Stuart was seated in a large wall tent, surrounded by his staff and some military visitors high in rank. They were having a jovial time, and twice I essayed to get past the guard who stood at the entrance of the Marquis, but was repulsed each time. Stuart's eye fell upon me, and I saw that he did not like it. The third time, my patience being exhausted, I made a final effort, pushed by the sentinel, and stood in General Stuart's presence. 
He was narrating an anecdote, and became furious at being interrupted by such a looking fellow as I, for there had been no time to change my unmilitary attire for a respectable uniform, and in thundering tones he ordered the guard to take me outside the camp. The sentinel obeyed, and I was ignominiously escorted beyond its boundaries. After all I had undergone, such treatment infuriated me, and to be arrested like a camp follower was too much. The next day I made a bee-line for the commanding general's quarters near Orange Court House. A few tents on a hill, with the battle flag, the staff of which stuck in the ground, showed where the leader of our army rested. An infantry guard walked lazily along his beat, but said nothing as I passed him. An orderly stood near, and I asked him if General Lee was in. He said that he was, and I requested him to tell the general that one of his private soldiers wanted to see him. He returned instantly with the summons to come in. I found General Lee sitting by a table covered with papers. He saluted me gravely, but did not recognize me until I mentioned my name and explained the cause of my ragged condition. I then told him of my visit to General Stuart and its object, and how bitter and unjust my treatment had been. Then I broke down. The General heard me through, and then assured me that General Stuart would never knowingly have treated any of his old soldiers in that manner. Then he told me to say to my colonel that I must have thirty days' furlough to recover from the effort of my long wanderings. General Lee was always accessible. The humblest private found in him a kind and gentle friend, and it is no wonder they followed him with absolute confidence and unbounded love. It is needless to add that I soon found my way to the camp of the Black Horse. I told Colonel Randolph of General Lee's request, and the next day I was in Richmond. End of chapter 16